morning. Has God been good to anybody in this room? Can we give God a hand, praise? Come on, he's been good to somebody other than me. I know that. Amen. It's good to see everybody. Um, I want to ask you guys to throw that picture up on the screen. I want to introduce you for those that may not know us. This is my lovely wife and my little black skin right here in the middle. All that personality, I look, she keeps me busy. Y'all pray for me. I got a lot of energy. This girl wears me out. And that is her large and in charge, just having a very compassionate heart. We told her she is an evangelist in training. She loves to tell people about Jesus. She will tell you about God. She will pray for you. She will do whatever she needs to do to take care of you. She will talk about people who have died like Jesus has them. They're healed now. The girl is getting ready. Now, if I can get that other little streak of other stuff that she's doing out of her system, she'll be saved for real. <laughs> y'all know, little five-year-olds sometimes be shepherds for the devil, so y'all be praying for her. So Pastor Sonia's at Beach Park. We split duties today. We are baptizing 10 people over there. Praise God. She's holding it down. She sent me over here and told me to be on my best behavior, so I'm going to do the best I can. I make no promises. And what we're doing is we're continuing our series about unexpected. Now, PK got up here last week and told an unexpected story. And I'll be honest with y'all, PK wins. You win, PK, you win the championship. Being in the back of a truck with wild baboons. I told him, this is, see, this is why black people don't do safaris. See, we go, we go to a zoo. <laughs> no, I want to look at you through a cage, through bars. <laughs> Ain't nobody going on a safari with wild animals out there looking. No, no, no. I would have been in the back of the car and just died. Went to see the king right there. No. <laughs> so, PK, you are the winner. You can have the baboons. Uh, no, you can have all of that. But as we're continuing this series, I want to talk to you about unexpected disciples. And maybe we don't think about it this way. But throughout the Bible, God used some people that were unexpected. I want you to think about this. People that you recognize. Abraham, y'all know he was a liar. Abraham would lie in a heartbeat, lied it a couple times. How about Moses, a murderer? Oh, Noah. Noah stayed on that ship for over a year and got off and couldn't wait to get some Hennessy. He went and found something to drink as soon as he got off the ship. David, baby mama drama, had problems. David did a bunch of other stuff too. That one, no, David had a lot of issues. <laughs> New Testament, Peter, who did Peter type stuff all the time. Paul, who spent the first half of his life massacring Christians. And what do they all have in common? We all recognize their names. We know them as some of the greatest carriers of God's will throughout the Bible. But look at their past. Look at the stuff they did. Unexpected disciples. And the thing that I am so happy about is when I look at their lives, I realize it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. Jesus said, I can still use you. He doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care what you did yesterday. He doesn't care what's going on in your life that makes you feel unworthy. He says, give me your life and I'll make something special out of it. That's encouraging. I know I've done some dirt in my past. And when I look at Peter's life, 
And I say, if Jesus could save and redeem you, oh, yes, God, I know I can be redeemed. <laughs> I know that I can be. So what I want to do is jump into some scripture here in Mark chapter 1. And we're going to have a good time today. I love having a lot of fun. This is one of the most incredible things I get to do as a campus pastor is speak God's word. I love to hear you all. You are welcome to talk back to me, shout me down, whatever you, hallelujah, amen, preach, whatever. I'm welcoming all of the above. Amen? Amen. All right, I got you. Now, let's jump into some scripture here. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And it says, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets, and he called them at once. And said, follow me. And they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired. They just left their daddy in the boat. (laughs) Leaving their father in the boat with the hired men. And the first thing that I want to really make sure you understand is that Jesus calls unexpected people. Here's something that I really need you to understand. And I know we got some young people in here too, and, and I'm here to talk to everybody. But Jesus doesn't care about your age. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're an infant. He doesn't care if you're a child. He doesn't care if you're a teenager, if you're middle-aged, if you're going through a midlife crisis, if you are old, if you are two breaths from death. He doesn't care. He wants to use you, and he doesn't care about what type of age you have on you. You're not exempt. You don't have to wait till you're 20. You don't have to wait till you're a grown-up. If you're a child, God can use you right now. Now, if you can bring up that picture for me, Because growing up, I would see movies that showed the disciples kind of looking like this. You know, a little little old, a little scruffy. Gray beards, long hair, you know, a little little old in the years. Some of them was balding. And then I looked at myself and I was like, well, you totally bald, so I don't know. But this is what I imagined I had to be to really allow Jesus to use me. I was going to have to be older. Then I started studying Jewish culture. And what I found out is that young boys would start going to school, and they would typically be learning about Scripture and studying all of those things with the Bible they had at that time. They would graduate at the age of 13. You would graduate and basically be in manhood at 13. And then at that point, you started an apprenticeship for whatever job you were going to have for life. Some of them who really had a desire to move forward in the study of scriptures and become a rabbi around 14, 15 years of age would go into the house of study. And this was a place where the rabbis would come in and they would walk up to students and they would use those two words, follow me. And as a student, this was all you cared about. You wanted a rabbi to tell you those two words and those kids would drop everything. Whatever they were doing, whoever they were with, it didn't matter who they were talking to, they would shut that down and immediately get up and follow the rabbi anywhere, everywhere. See, the goal was to become like the rabbi. It was to follow him wherever he went, however far he traveled. Whatever he liked to do, you did. The job was to learn and match your life up to his. I'm going to be just like him. I'm going to teach just like him, down to his mannerisms. 
total emulation. So if we look at it and we're realizing that these rabbis are calling students and choosing the best of the best, Jesus was also known as a rabbi. See, he was known as a great teacher back then. So for Jesus walking down the street to call out to anybody and say, follow me, anybody of the Jewish culture would have known exactly what that meant. This is a rabbi giving me an opportunity to do the number one thing that we do in our culture. Now, if my theory is correct, and I'm going to give you some more proof, can y'all bring up my other picture? I think the disciples looked a bit more like this. I think they were teenagers, young people, people who 13, 14, 15, 17, 18 years of age, who Jesus called, who are probably in some type of apprenticeship when he called them. Now, why do I assume that? Well, there's some Bible that I think backs this up. Number one, in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly referring to them as his children or as his little ones. Now, y'all, look, if I'm pastor of a church, which I am, and I got people in there 40 and 50 years old, which I do, what I don't do is walk in the room and say, hey, my little ones. <laughs> that would make zero sense. Why would I talk to them like they kids? Unless they were kids. Understand this in the Bible. Typically in Jewish culture at the age of 18, young men would take a wife. Well, we know from the Bible, it only tells us about one person having a wife being Peter whose mother-in-law was healed at some point. So it's possible none of the others had wives because they weren't even 18 yet. Oh, let me continue. There was Capernaum where all the disciples decided to go with Jesus there, and there was a tax that had to be paid by adult men. And Jesus tells Peter, go down to the river, grab a fish, open its mouth, and take the money out of the fish mouth and pay the taxes for me and you. But what about everybody else? Maybe they didn't need to pay the tax because they weren't of age to pay. Some of the things that the disciples did that made zero sense if they was 50 years old. There's a story about the disciples in Luke chapter 9 deciding to go and preach the gospel. And when people rejected them, they said, Jesus, can we call fire down on them? You want to send people to hell on fire? <laughs> That's your goal? That's your plan? That's how you help and manage conflict? Well, y'all know how much teenagers like fire? <laughs> Anything a teenager can set on fire, including you, they will. <laughs> teenagers, Luke 22, they're sitting around a table arguing over which one of us is the greatest disciple. Well, look, y'all, let's imagine here at Journey Church, I was to bring the rest of the pastors on the stage, me, P. John, P. Cody, Pastor Sam, Pastor Jacob, and we stand on this stage arguing with each other, who the greatest pastor at Journey? P.K. was like, how old are y'all again? Because at 30 and 40 years old, that's dumb. But at 13 and 14, that makes a lot more sense. My personal favorite, my personal favorite, Matthew, James, and John, no, James and John's mama is traveling with them. You 40, 50 years old, your mama's still traveling with you. They mama walks up to Jesus ever so just gently. Jesus, uh, you know, I was just thinking that when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your left and your right side? P. 
Can y'all imagine a 45-year-old man? Hey, mama, come here, mama. Uh, see, uh, me and James, we want to sit next to Jesus, but we don't want to bother him. Can you go ask him for us? That would make zero sense for a grown man to send his mama to go ask Jesus about where he can sit in heaven. But if you're 16, this makes a lot more sense. Well, mama, I don't want Jesus to think I'm crazy. Can you ask him? <laughs> and mamas like typically do, yeah, baby, I'll ask. <laughs> I believe Jesus was a youth pastor. He was constantly asking them, don't you understand? Don't you understand? If anybody here, parents of a teenager, and you be asking them, don't you understand that's wrong? Don't you understand that's dumb? Don't you understand that's not how the real world works? Oh, apparently we got a lot of folks asking that question. <laughs> Teenagers running around here thinking the real world operate according to their plans. No. Jesus was asking them this type of stuff, constantly challenging them. What's wrong with you? What's your problem? Why couldn't you cast that out? Why y'all so worried about this storm? Jesus was, they was on Jesus' nerves because Jesus was the first youth pastor. <laughs> I'm totally convinced. Here's the other thing Jesus doesn't care about, your profession. He doesn't care. Why do we know this? Because see, again, if you went to the house of study, the best of the best students went there, and that's what rabbis typically chose. Jesus didn't go to the house of study to get his people. You would think the king of kings and the lord of lords would want like the green berets of ministry. He would want the best, the ones that could help him carry out everything he wanted to do. No, Jesus went and found some folks who was fishing. <laughs> he found a tax collector that was hated by the Jews. He had one physician. He had somebody that was known as a zealot. If you don't know what a zealot is, that's somebody that believes in total anarchy of the political system. This person would have been the one dude in the group that's constantly trying to figure out, Jesus, how are we going to overthrow the Roman government? That's all I'm here for. <laughs> Book of John says that Judas was literally an embezzler and a thief. It don't even refer to the jobs of the rest of the disciples. It just ignores them completely. Jesus, is this the best you can do? Can you imagine the other rabbis walking around laughing at Jesus and his group? Where you get them from? Why his hands smell like fish? <laughs> what is happening here? This is what Jesus chose to change the entire world with. And what I love about this is that the typical students never would have chosen these professions. They wouldn't have dropped out of school to go be a, a, a tax collector, to go be a fisherman. These are people that had no options. And what I love is that when Jesus called them, they didn't tell him about all the things they were not able to do. They got up out of the boat. They came out of the house. They walked off the street and they made themselves available to Jesus. See, there's a lesson in that. I'm talking to somebody in this room and I don't even know who it is, but God just wants you to make yourself available to him. You're worrying about, I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the education. Well, look at what I've been through. Look at where I've come from. And Jesus says, I don't really care about any of that. Follow me. Follow me. That was all Jesus wanted. Let's dive back into some scripture here in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And again, come follow me. 
Philip was from Bethesda, Andrew and Peter's hometown, and Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And when he said Nazareth, Nathanael looks at him and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. And as they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, again, they knew he was a teacher. You are the son of God, the king of Israel. Here's something else you must know. Jesus himself was unexpected. Nobody was expecting him to come as he did. See, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a conquering king who was going to come in and liberate the Jewish culture from under the Roman rule. They were looking for somebody to show up on the scene with an army, ready to take over. And here comes Jesus, showing up on the scene in obscurity. You were born where? Out with some animals? His family went on the run for two years in Egypt. What kind of conquering king is this? He finally comes back home and grows up as the son of a carpenter? We don't even hear about Jesus from the age of 12 to 30. This is our king? And then Jesus messed with him. Oh, yeah, I'm coming to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, yes, it's about to happen. And Jesus says, uh, can one of y'all go find me a donkey? Jesus, you got to be kidding me. How you ride in to conquer Jerusalem on a donkey? Everything Jesus did was unexpected. Jesus broke all of the rules, all of the expectations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious figures. Jesus came on the scene doing unexpected things. He healed people on the Sabbath. He touched lepers. He allowed people that typically shouldn't be around a king. He hung out with them, just spending time with the sinners, loving on them, being around them, allowing people with prostitution in their background to wash his feet. Jesus, who came on the scenes and didn't boast, didn't brag, didn't fight back when he was betrayed, allowed himself to die the worst death imaginable and said, Father, forgive them. Jesus, unexpected. What kind of king is this? And for some of you, you're living an unexpected life like Jesus. See, if people knew your background, and if they knew what you've been through, and they knew where you've come from, they would never imagine you'd be standing here right now living a blessed life, having Jesus on your side. See, you were supposed to die in that accident. Cancer was supposed to take you out of here. You weren't supposed to survive that divorce. That depression was supposed to take you out. You're not supposed to be anything but a negative statistic. But here you are in this room giving God some praise for bringing you out of situations that you didn't think you would come out of because you served an unexpected king who has called you to be his unexpected disciple. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, 
He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them like we did today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you. See, Jesus, the unexpected king who calls unexpected disciples, now gives out an unexpected mission. I want you to go do what I did. I want you to go tell people to follow you as you follow me. I want you to teach them all the things that I have taught you. I want you to baptize them. Just giving out an unexpected mission. See, in Acts, Jesus says that through the Holy Spirit, his disciples' mission is to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what is a witness? Well, we understand the court systems. We understand that in court, you go and you're trying to typically prove that you are either innocent or prove that they're guilty. And what you do to try to fortify your position, you bring a witness with you. Someone who can give evidence on your behalf that what you are saying is actually what happened. Now, you all, I'm telling on myself a little bit, but I'm a Judge Judy fanatic. Anybody here watch Judge Judy? I know some of y'all are like, I ain't going to tell. I see his hand. Thank you. I see some hands back there. I love me some Judge Judy. Like, I would hang out with her right now. Judge Judy say the stuff that I be thinking. And y'all know I say a lot of stuff. Judge Judy say more than me. And it was a court case where these two folks was up there. And y'all already know. People come to Judge Judy over total foolishness. So why you come here, I don't know. They stand there with Judge Judy, and they're fighting their case. And the lady says, well, I have a witness. And let's just call the witness name Bobby. So Judge Judy is like, okay, well, bring your witness up. So Bobby gets up, and he comes over to the podium. And she's like, you know, so Bobby, tell me, tell me what you saw. And Bobby messed up right off the bat. <laughs> Bobby looks at her and says, well, I didn't see it, but I heard about it. Oh, Bobby, no, no, not on this show. <laughs> Judge Judy looked at him and said, Bobby, shut up and have a seat. <laughs> we are not trying to listen to what you think you heard from somebody else third hand. She was like, you weren't even there? Well, no, I wasn't there. Then what you come for? What kind of witness is a witness that didn't witness nothing? <laughs> Go sit down somewhere. So Bobby leaves. And this is how witnesses are supposed to work. You come in with things that you saw, things that you heard, things that you experienced that would lay into credence to what's being said. Jesus comes on the scene and is telling people that he is the son of God and he's the savior of the world. And the Bible says that we are to be his witnesses. We are to bring evidence to the court before the jury to prove that what Jesus is saying is real in the Natural, we call the presenting of evidence testifying. We're supposed to give a testimony of who Jesus is in our lives. Don't get up on the stage, put your hand on the Bible, and then tell folks what you heard. No. When I testify, I tell people what I know about Jesus. I tell them what I saw Jesus do. I'm telling them what I've watched Jesus do in my life. I'm telling them I watched Jesus heal me. I watched him bring my marriage back together. I watched him bring me out of the sick bed. I watched him heal her from cancer. I watched him do miraculous things. 
This is why the Bible tells us it's through the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. We got to be good witnesses, you guys. Ain't nothing worse than seeing a witness get on the stage and don't know what they're talking about. You see them witnesses that get up there and they do good with direct examination. See, direct examination is when your lawyer is asking you questions. That's the one where they prepped you and you had practice trial and you sat in the chair and they say, when I ask you this, make sure you answer this way. No, don't say it like that. Say it like this. When they've prepared you, and some of us as Christians are really good with other Christians, we witness really well to them. Oh, as long as they already know the language, as long as they already recognize the Bible and they can find Matthew in it, they will understand everything you're saying. You're using Christianese. No one thinks it's weird. You're telling folks you're covered by the blood. And in Christian world, that's wonderful. But when you get cross-examined by somebody in the world and you tell them you're covered by the blood and they start stepping back, like, that sounds weird. <laughs> what blood are you playing around with? Because we talk weird and strange when we get cross-examined and then witnesses that did such a great job under direct examination, now you've got a hostile person asking you questions because, see, when the real world comes to your door and they got real problems and they're trying to get some real answers and they're trying to find out if there's a real God, the typical answers don't work. This is why we have to study to show ourselves approved. This is why we should always be ready to give a testimony, always ready to give evidence of our faith and why we believe what we believe. This is why this is so important. In Matthew 28 and 20, Jesus ends what we know as the Great Commission. With this phrase, he says, and be sure of this. So he's told them all these things he wants them to do that were like him. You're my disciples, I want you to go make disciples. I want you to go all over this world and baptize them and make sure they follow all my commandments. And as you're doing that, be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be here forever. As you're following my laws, as you're doing what I'm asking you to do, as you are my disciples, you'll never have to wonder if I'm not with you. He gives them a lifetime guarantee. Now, many of us recognize the guarantee. You know them things they try to sell y'all, them warranties every time you buy anything that's got electronics in it. The one where they tell you for the next three months for this $29.95, if anything goes wrong, you can just return it. Well, I already know. It ain't going to break in three months. It's going to break in four. And I don't know how they do this. How do you make products that literally break immediately after my warranty run out? I don't get it. So I don't never buy the warranty, not ever. But Jesus gives us a lifetime guarantee saying, I will be with you forever. So why is that so important? Why, why would Jesus even say that? Why would he give some kind of guarantee like that? Well, let me help you out. So for everybody in here that I believe is saved and sanctified, you probably have an iPhone. <laughs> Maybe you don't. If you, I saw you raise your hand right there. So we're going to pray for the salvation of everybody that don't have one. Okay, I got you. <laughs> But seriously, Apple makes products. They're a manufacturer. And I've got an iPhone here, and on the back of it is this big Apple that they print on the back. Now, before they put that sign on the back of there, they test that product out. They probably ran that phone through God knows how many tests because they wanted to make sure for it to be successful, they had to build everything into it that it would need. 
And then after they tested it to make sure it could be successful, they planted their image right on the smack back of it. Then they sell it. And you get it. And you open that box. And you all happy with your new iPhone 13. Or 7, depending on you. I don't know. (laughs) And before you get to the phone, there's a book covering it. Why? Because they want you to read the book before you mess with the phone. And on the book says, please read this manual completely before operating this device. Now, I know a lot of folks that don't believe in reading no manuals. They just put stuff together. They be looking at the picture. Oh, what you looking at the picture for? You can't tell where them screws go. Folks building stuff, the leg is wobbly, this thing don't work right. Because you didn't read the manual. Because the manual is the manufacturer's mind on paper about the product to teach you about how to operate it, to teach you about what it can do. This manual is a book of laws, a book of instructions, a book of promises, a book of guarantees of how this will work and what you need to do to keep it in good operating condition. Now, they will give you some things that you should not do as well. Don't operate this near fire. Don't submerge underwater. If it's bleached, don't drink it. They will give you laws. If you get this in your eye, please flush with water for 20 minutes and go to your nearest physician. Things to be aware of. And then at the end of that book, they have something I love, which is called the warranty, which says, if you follow all of these rules and instructions, we will protect, replace, repair, and restore this item from any defects you come across. And if you ever need to return an item, you know, like, it's pretty self-sufficient. They will cover the cost for you to send the item back to them. They'll do all this stuff to it. They'll even give you a brand new one. Mail it back to you at their cost. No cost to you. Why would they do that? Because they love you so much? No, they don't even know you. They don't care about you. They care about themselves. They care about their reputation because here with any manufacturer, they understand that I'm only as successful as my product is. And if my product fails, my reputation fails. Well, if we're taking this to the Bible, there's a name for reputation and it's called namesake. Apple will take care of my phone under warranty, not for me, but for their namesake to protect their own reputation. Let me read you something that's in the Bible here. Maybe this will help you bring this all together. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 21, it says, Then I was concerned for my holy name on which my people brought shame among the nations. So God is speaking here, hey, I'm concerned about my name. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. Which implies you actually don't deserve this. You don't even deserve what I'm about to do for you. He says, I am doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered amongst the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame amongst the nations. He keeps repeating this. You have made me an embarrassment in front of everybody else. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to invite the musician to come back as I'm getting to the end of this. 
God says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. Do we recognize the fact that God is ultimately the incredible manufacturer and we are his product? And before the foundations of the earth, when God was forming you in your mother's womb, he says, I built everything into you that you would need to be successful. See, Dr. Miles Monroe, who I love listening to, he says a phrase that God is more committed to your success than even you are. He's committed to it. He'll give you a guarantee about it. He says that I will take care of you. I will help you. I will be there for you. And I'm giving you a lifetime warranty on this. Now, here's the thing. With my Apple phone, if I have a problem, I can't just send it anywhere. I have to send it to what Apple calls an authorized dealer. Someone who's been authorized to work on this product. Because if I send it to my guy up the street and ask him to fix it, I'll void my warranty. So God says that when you find defects in your life, you must bring your life back to an authorized dealer. Now, see, there's a lot of dealers in the world that you can go to, but all of them are not authorized. See, we know some dealers like Muhammad. We know dealers, Buddha, Confucius, humanism, atheism. These are all dealers, but they're not authorized by God. Our authorized dealer is Jesus Christ who has promised you that when you run into some defects, when you have some problems, when you have some issues, bring it back to me. I will protect, I will repair, I will restore, I will replace, and I'll put you right back in the place where you were supposed to be at the beginning. See, some of us try to go to other dealers. We try to go to drugs, we try to drink, we go to sex, we go to relationships, we go to other jobs, we go to money. These are not authorized dealers. They cannot repair your broken product. They will just void your warranty. When you opened that iPhone and you saw that manual and I told you it is the manufacturer's mind on paper. God gives us a manual that is his mind on paper. And he says, before operating, read this through. It's a book of laws, a book of promises, a book of guarantees. That if you follow them, it will lead you to good success. You're wondering why your life's not working right. You're wondering why you're getting that error message every time you wake up in the morning. And I'm telling you, it's because you haven't read the manual. He's given us everything we need to be successful. Why? Because he wants to be successful. No manufacturer can be successful if their product fails. God wants us to carry the gospel throughout this world. And if we fail, people will go to hell because of it. So why would he want you to fail? So his name 
so his reputation could be destroyed. It's not the God we serve. And if you're in this room today and you know that God has called you to do more, follow him. If he's called you to come out of the boat and to start walking in companionship with him, follow him. If he's calling you to be a better husband, he's calling you to be a better wife, he's calling you to be a better father, he's calling you to start that business, he's calling you to write that book, he's calling you to step out of the norm and into something incredible, follow him. It's not your job to figure it out. What I love about Peter, with all the things he did wrong, Peter was the only disciple that was willing to get out of the boat. He saw Jesus and he said, if it's you, bid me to come. Peter knew, I better not get out of this boat if he didn't tell me to go. First things first, don't move if God didn't tell you to move. But if he tells you, come on, don't you stay in that boat? Do you understand the unexpected miracle that Peter got stepping? I'm sure he was deathly afraid. Who would have confidence stepping out of a boat onto water? But it's not your responsibility to make sure you can walk on water. That's his. If he calls you to walk on the impossible, then it's his job to make the impossible possible. It's not your job. You don't have to figure it out. That's his job. You don't have to know the outcome. That's his job. The only thing he asks you to do is follow me. I'll take care of the rest. Just pattern your life after mine, my disciple. Emulate me in every way. Teach like I teach. Love like I love. Be like I am. Down to my mannerisms. Emulate me. And he says that by this, the whole world would know that you are my disciples by the way you love. You are, we serve an unexpected king who calls unexpected disciples. Gives us an unexpected mission. And then provides us with an unexpected guarantee that brings us all the way back to Jeremiah 29 and 11. Where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to bring you with your unexpected self to an expected end. I'm inviting you today to step out of the boat. I'm inviting you today to walk into a brand new life, to do something different. If you know God has called you to do more, but you're just scared to do it, take this today as your confirmation that God is saying, if you get out the boat, if you accept my calling, if you become my disciple, I got your back. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And whenever you have a problem, you can always bring it back to me because I promise to repair. I promise to restore. I promise to make new. And you'll never have to pay the cost because I already did. I want to invite two different groups of people to do something.
First and foremost, maybe you're standing in here today and you haven't accepted just the calling to be his disciple. That's the first step. And a lot of times I ask for people to bow their heads and close their eyes because it makes it easier and more hands go up when they know ain't nobody looking. <laughs> but sometimes Jesus wants you to be, be bold. He wants you to just get out of the boat, leave your net right where it's at and be like, Dad, I got to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Today is that day for somebody. So if you're in this room and you're ready to make the decision to be his disciple and to start walking this new life in salvation with Christ, can you just wave your hand at me like today, Pastor Jay, come on. I love it. Pastor Jay, I'm ready. I want to be a disciple. I love it. Thank you. Come on. Just wave at me real quick. I thank you. I love it. Yes, I love it. Sometimes you just got to be bold about it. Some things don't need to be hidden. Jesus, I want you. Don't care who sees. Don't care who knows. I love seeing those hands. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to all pray together, and then I'm going to put my second challenge out. I want everybody to just bow your heads and your, close your eyes for a second. Let's pray together this prayer of salvation. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that I deserve death. But you are the Son of God, and you gave your life for me. So I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you my mind. I give you my soul. And I will live for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God some praise right now. This is what we're here for. This is what we're here for. We're here to see people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason why we do this. Now, as a secondary thing of why we do this, for those of you that already know Jesus, and maybe you just haven't been giving him all of you, is it anybody that will be honest and be bold today and say, Pastor Jay, there's more Jesus wants out of me. He is calling me to do more. Just wave your hand. He wants more from me. He's asking me to do more. He's giving me dreams. He's giving me ideas. He's calling me to step out in faith. And Pastor Jay, I'm scared. I'm scared to do it. I'm struggling with insecurities. I know I should, but I'm worried. I love the hands. We got to start with honesty. We got to acknowledge there's a problem. But we also know the problem solver. We got to bring those fears to Jesus and tell him to give us the strength to step out of the boat. Knowing, yes, could I sink? Absolutely. Could I drown? Sure. Could this be embarrassing? Absolutely. This could go wrong a million ways. But what if it works? What if your friends see you walking on water? And it becomes the greatest testimony ever because they suddenly realize everything you said about Jesus was true. At this moment, I want to invite everybody that can to stand up on your feet. I'm going to pray over you, specifically for those that raise their hands. I want you to think about whatever it is God has called you to. And you know what it is. And what I love about Jesus, he said to make sure you bear your cross. You don't have to carry mine. He says, bear your cross. You accept the calling for yourself. And as a good disciple, our job is to emulate him in whatever way we can. recognize that Jesus was the first 
example of what we're talking about. Jesus left heaven. He left what was normal. He left what he had been doing for God knows how many years, and he stepped out into something that was completely foreign. He came to this earth and dealt with challenges galore. He had to face the same problems we face. He set the example. Let's do the same. He said, this shall you do and greater. 